0: Uh, I'm gonna take a tally. My last talk, it was mostly primary care providers. So what do you guys do? How many primary care providers do we have in the group? Great, Uh, how about GYNs, women's health folks, pharmacology, anesthesia, Uh, who am I missing? Who's somebody tell me, what do you do? PT. PT, PT, of course, physical therapy, right. Pain medicine, yes, of course. Okay, makes sense, okay. Well, welcome. And I hope I can uh, do my job today, and uh, first of all, to bring awareness to another um, female-specific pain syndrome. Um, Today, this year, I think we had three talks that were specific to women's health. I'm hoping to change that in the future, since women are the majority of the patients that are affected by chronic pain syndromes. I hope we cover all the female chronic pain syndromes over the next few years. But today, we're gonna talk about vulvodynia and uh, I have no disclosures except to tell you that uh, I told this group before, I'm, I'm a clinician and a researcher. So I spend about half of my time, 60% of my time in clinical practice and 40% of my time in research activities. And most of my research has focused on vulvar, uh, chronic vulvar pain and I was also uh, from 2009 to 2014, I actually ran the National Volvadinia Registry. So a lot of the input that I'm giving you today is a combination of my clinical and research experience, but in the end, hopefully everything that I share with you that's research related will be applicable to your clinical practice. If not, let me know and (laughs) I'll make my talk for next year better. Uh, we have just a few learning objectives. We're going to review the pathophysiology and presentation of vulvodynia and, and dyspareunia, which is painful intercourse. We're gonna talk about some of the other differential diagnoses that we have to keep in mind when we're seeing these patients. And we're gonna talk a lot about uh, treatment uh, regimens um, for vulvar pain. I always like to start with test your knowledge. Uh, so you have a 55, 54-year-old married female who comes to your office. For management of her fibromyalgia and her pain medications and you're done with the visit and just as uh, as you start walking out the room she says well i know that this is not your specialty but and she goes on to tell you that she's been having over the last several months she's been having a lot of uh, pain during intercourse and loss of desire which is worrying her and interfering with her relationship she tells you she has no other medical problems except for the fibromyalgia and her only uh, medications are the ones that you've prescribed and she's also on a hormonal pill You do a brief vaginal exam and you tell her you don't see anything wrong and uh, what should be your next step. I've given you some options here. A, you order your analysis, which is negative. You give her a short course of your favorite antibiotic and you send her on her way. B, you ask her some additional questions, such as whether she's been experiencing vaginal dryness, itching, hot flashes, and insomnia. C, you tell her you don't see anything wrong and you recommend she go home and have more sex to see if it gets better. I know you are laughing, but you will be amazed how many women are actually told that. It, I, I mean, it never fails to amaze me in my practice. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And D, you ask her whether she's being abused or if she, uh, and if she denies, you tell her there's nothing you can do and just keep on living with the pain because you don't know anything about vaginal pain. And who can blame you? Because you know, vaginal pain terminology and sexual terminology is really confusing These are just some of the terms that I could come up with, and actually I had three slides of sexual terminology to really make my point, but I decided I didn't have enough time to go through all of them. So we're gonna stick to just this one. So there's the term dyspareunia, which is just recurrent or persistent vaginal pain associated with sexual intercourse. There's vulvodynia, which is meant to imply more chronic vaginal vulvar pain that can be either provoked or unprovoked by something like sexual intercourse. There's vestibulitis, which is pain uh, that is localized to the vestibule, which is the vaginal entrance. We'll go through the anatomy in just a minute. And that too can be provoked or unprovoked. There's vaginismus, which is an involuntary muscle spasm and fear of touch. So these women, you can't even get near them. Um, And then there's hyposexual um, uh, desire disorder or arousal disorder, which is actually a diagnosis that has nothing to do with pain. And yet we see that documented in pain patients all the time technically if you have a hyposexual desire disorder you really are not supposed to um, be classified as a pain patient if you have pain you you go into the pain diagnosis the other four at the top here the epidemiology is just absolutely astonishing how many women live with pain during intercourse I call this the silent syndrome the World um, Health Organization actually did a big big study on. Chronic pelvic pain syndromes amongst women. Um, they looked at dyspareunia, they looked at dysmenorrhea, and then just chronic pain in general of unknown etiology. Uh, and they uh, uh, had, they actually looked at several, you know, they pulled all the data that they had available from across the world. And when it came to dyspareunia or vulvodynia, because there's a lot of mixing up of the terminology in these studies, but what they found is that somewhere between 12 to 21% of women. Uh, actually live with, um, and one to 5% of men live with a sexual pain disorder. Um, And it's pretty well replicated in the few studies that we have uh, in other parts of the world. And as you can see, the map is white for most uh, most of this image because we don't have any data at all in these countries. So most of what we know about vulvodynia has been based out of westernized countries uh, studies. So chronic vulvar pain was originally classified in 2003 by the International Society for the Study of Vulvar Diseases. I always like to say all of that in one breath, but uh, basically they defined um, vulvar pain or vulvodynia as vulvar pain uh, related to a specific disorder, uh, excuse me, that, and it can be infectious, inflammatory, neoplastic, or neurologic, but for you to get vul- the diagnosis of vulvodynia, you're supposed to have pain that was not related to any of those diagnoses so it was a pain a lower genital pain of unknown etiology that manifested itself as pain and occasional erythema of the vulva without any obvious infection dermatologic or neurologic disease so for you to get the classification of vulvodynia your healthcare provider had to make sure that they excluded all of these other conditions and that of course assumes that we all know how to exclude these conditions which as you can imagine that was a problem then they went on to subclassify vulvodynia and to generalize vulvodynia, which is pain involving the entire vulva, localized vulvodynia, which is pain uh, localized just to the vaginal entrance to the vestibule, provoked vulvodynia, unprovoked. I mean, there were so many different classifications of vulvodynia that really, even the gynecologists don't know how to diagnose this disease. And so, you know, we just had to go back a little bit and, and get our bearings and kind of start studying the syndrome and phenotype patients a little bit better. Regardless of the way we diagnose vulvodynia, we do know that about 28% of the United States uh, female population will report having this type of pain. And that, if you do the math, so 8% um, at any given time will have vulvar pain, vulvodynia, excuse me. And if you do the math, that's about 14 million women in the United States. That's pretty impressive. Um, There seems to be a higher incidence in Hispanic women, which is a, a real problem because guess what? They don't show up for care. So we know they have this type of pain, but we don't know how to get to the patients yet. We have lots of studies on the impact of vulvodynia. We know that about at least 50% of women who have this type of vaginal pain will not seek help. Of those who seek help, 60% will see more than three physicians or three healthcare providers for this type of pain. On average, women suffer for at least five years before they actually go and seek help. They're two to three times uh, more likely to have other comorbid pain syndromes such as ICIBS, temporomandibular uh, joint disorders, fibromyalgia, migraines. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome is another one. They have a very poor quality of life and they have a lot of sexual dysfunction and high distress. And um, healthcare costs associated with uh, a care of these patients is estimated somewhere around 31 to $72 million annually. We have a lot of therapies available for women with chronic vulvar pain. There's all sorts of educational um, uh, vulvar care regimens. There are topical creams. There are oral therapies that we use as in, uh, that are common to other chronic pain syndromes. We use a lot of physical therapy, behavioral therapy. We use a lot of blocks and injections. And uh, sometimes we even do surgeries. And the question for a provider is, you know, when do we do what? Because <laughs> there's so many options. So you think this is the good news, right? We have lots of options. But actually, when we looked, at, uh, there was this researcher, JC Andrews, who published a report in 2011 about the efficacy of all of these interventions. So he looked at, he found 71 eligible articles uh, for, um, for different types of therapies for vulvodynia. Uh, 55 of them actually reported that it was a therapeutic intervention. Some were RCTs, but most of them were observational. And then, um, in, in all of those reports, the problem was that there was insufficient data to show that any of those interventions were more efficacious than you know, whatever they were using as a control. So that was really disappointing for us because we had a lot of therapeutic options, but when we actually went back and looked at the data, we realized, ooh, <laughs> they may not necessarily work. And then we said, well, you know, maybe they do work, but we're just not selecting the right patients for the right therapies. So this is how we came about with the national registry. Um, The registry was really designed to enroll as many patients from across the nation, all of them from clinical settings. Now the catch was that most of these um, enrollment sites were, I mean, there's 10 of them around the country, where uh, clinical sites that have vulvar specialists. So these were highly specialized clinics. And by the time women made it there, they had been through the rigmarole trying to get therapy. And so our goal was to describe the patient characteristics and to phenotype patients to figure out, you know, what are vulvar pain patients really like, what kinds of therapies we should be recommending where, when. So we wanted to phenotype them, we wanted to look at everything that made them different and everything that made them similar. And we wanted to look at the treatments that these providers were using and to determine whether the outcomes were favorable. Well, basically we just wanted to know if the experts knew what the hell they were doing. We had eight enrollment sites across the country and we came up with a pretty um, standardized protocol um, for the way we did things in the registry. So women would come in, they would be screened. They had to have at least three months of um, vulvar pain. Um, They're all older than 20. The pain had to be severe enough to have some kind of impairment of sexual function or quality of life. And then we screened about 900 women and we enrolled and followed about 383 women over the time period from uh, enrollment i think official enrollment started in late 2009 and finished in july of 2014. and then what we did is we we evaluated the women at uh, the initial visit so we did a battery of questionnaires we did a pretty extensive uh, physical exam which we'll talk about then we followed them at four to eight weeks three months six months and 12 months and at each time point they filled out those questionnaires again and we did the exam and they filled out a lot of questionnaires i mean <laughs> And it's amazing to me that the patients actually did this, but they did. They, we looked at um, their pain levels with the McGill. We, looked, uh, we did a CSQ for coping strategies. We did a FSFI, which is a female sexual function index. We did an SF12, and, um, and we did you know Beck Depression Inventory, the old one that, that's like, I don't know how many questions, and a BSI. So we collected a lot of psychometric variable and social variables on these patients as well and the exam we really wanted to see because because we didn't know how these women should be examined so we, we decided to copy everything that the neurobiologist told us to do which is do a pretty extensive sensory exam of the vagina we didn't know a little bit about the sensory um, uh, the the neural pathways of the vulvar uh, sensation so we did a sensory exam of the vulva and the vagina and then um, a single-digit musculoskeletal exam to evaluate the pelvis And then we did a speculum exam to look for cultures and so forth. We collected all sorts of autoimmune markers and then we did DNA swabs and collected uh, genetic material as well. And we had to be very careful because we had to train all the physicians to do the same thing, right? Because we didn't want different people doing different things. I mean, the, the information we collected from the patients needed to be standardized, but we did let them select the treatment. We had no involvement whatsoever with the uh, physician's or provider's ability to select what therapy they thought was best. And the idea was that you know, we would have folks collect all sorts of system, uh, physical exam information in a very systematic manner, and then they could use that information to decide whatever was best for the patient. And hopefully, if we're all experts, we would all get to the same conclusions. So what did we find? And, and I will tell you that and doing the registry was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, one, because I was just amazed that physicians would follow its research instructions and do what we asked them to do. Two, I was amazed by what the, all the information that the patients gave us, and then I was amazed by how consistent our results were, and how um, how well we could actually phenotype these women. So the first thing we, I can tell you about these women, and this is this may not be what you see in your generalist practice right but this is definitely what other people are seeing in their specialty practices the women tended to be very young they're mostly caucasian and insured so right there right off the bat we realized we probably have a huge disparity in access to care for minority women only 10% of our patients actually had generalized vulvar pain most of them had very localized uh, pain localized to the vaginal vestibule Uh, And at least 20% of our patients had other comorbid pain syndromes. Now, the reason I say at least is because we actually didn't do a very good job at diagnosing all of those other chronic pain syndromes. this is all recall history. So the patient would tell us, yeah, I was diagnosed with IBS and fibromyalgia and all that. But probably if we had done a more extensive history uh, uh, taking or screening questionnaires, we we would have found a higher incidence of these comorbid syndromes. And this has been actually replicated in other Vulvadinia studies nearly all women reported having pain with intercourse and yet at least 86 percent of them continue to be sexually active so women were having intercourse with pain they're coping with this pain somehow and i wish we could study their coping mechanisms but i would say that actually this is probably one of those few chronic pain syndromes where patients do cope with their pain and somehow manage to live on it's not a nice living uh, but they do manage most of them are living, we're living with on average four years, which was also uh, four years of pain, which was also uh, well reported in the literature. And when it came to impaired coping, what we saw most of uh, was anxiety. Uh, we saw some depression and mostly anxiety. We found actually very little abuse, sexual abuse, uh, a lot less than we expected. Um, and we al- found almost no physical abuse, which was interesting because I always thought, you know, These women are having a lot of sexual uh, relationship problems and so forth, and I, I, I thought maybe that would be a bigger problem, but it wasn't. What was interesting is that their quality of life is marked by limited physical function, but even more so by emotional distress and emotional impairment. So they're able to cope and physically go on and have intercourse, but emotionally, they are not doing well. And this is very interesting because, at least for most gynecologists, if a patient comes in and tells us, I have vaginal pain, what do we do? We do a vaginal exam, we look to see if there's something there, and then we let the patient go. I mean, we are not taught to do an emotional assessment or a mood or a psychiatric assessment. And clearly, if you look at this cohort of patients, we should be doing what all the other chronic pain syndromes are doing and putting this evaluation in the, in the, in the, um, in the setting of a biopsychosocial uh, assessment and really taking a very good psych- psychiatric history as well. The vast majority of the women who present it to our, yes, question in the back. Until they were seen by a provider. So in the questionnaire. So four years it I'm sorry? No, it doesn't mean they had it for four years, but four years until they saw a provider. But if you, that's actually a great question and I don't mean to, hopefully I'll stay on time. Uh, but um, if you look at other studies, uh, vulvodynia women are actually, a lot of them, a large percentage are characterized by periods of remission. So they'll, they'll have pain for a while, then the pain will simmer down, then they'll have pain again, and they'll, sim- so they, they do go up and down. Um, so the vast majority of the women who presented to our uh, registry had a lot of mucosal allodynia and musculoskeletal pain. We actually never found any other neurosensory uh, abnormalities uh, and this was very important for us because as you may know a musculoskeletal exam is not a standard exam in gynecology it's not standard for even for pain specialists really and clearly we realized we were having we we had a, a, a missed opportunity for a proper evaluation there and then we were able to do a lot of what we call cluster analysis and please don't ask me to go into that but i'll be happy to talk to you about it but cluster analysis basically we just let the data tell us how women should subgroup themselves or what are the subtypes that come out and what we found is that level of distress had a lot to do with level of pain so psychiatric distress had a lot to do with level of pain much more so than physical findings and if you think about the clinical implications of that right what do we do during an exam we poke and we probe the vagina and we do all this stuff to the patient but their psychiatric state is actually a very very important variable that we were never taught to pay attention to and i won't talk about our genetics findings because we don't have time for that here is the kicker when we looked at treatments it was amazing what we found there were 84 different types of therapies there were so many different types of therapies that physicians either that were either approved or they just made up All sorts of cockamamie stuff they made up. There were so many therapies that we actually had to subcategorize them into 28 categories. And so there were things like topical therapy, antidepressants, neuroleptics, neuroleptics. all of those were different categories. And what's interesting is that more than 75% of our cohort received at least one therapy. And most of them actually averaged three to four therapies at the same time from the initial visit and i was actually because i always thought that physicians would do one thing at a time but they they weren't they were mixing and matching therapies which if you think about it and you are let's say you have drug a and you're doing a clinical trial for vulvodynia with a drug a Well, okay it's not working i wonder why <laughs> well it's either because you've got the wrong mechanism or because it's not really enough you might have to work on multiple mechanisms at once to get the effect that you want And the good news, even though we were mishmashing all of this stuff, the good news is that women were getting better. At six months and 12 months, we could see persistent improvements in their pain levels, but not in their sexual function. And that was actually pretty demoralizing for us. Um, And we still don't know why. I have some theories about that, and you'll see me talk about it at the end of the talk. Uh, I think that has significant clinical implications for us. Um, But, yes, pain can get better in the vagina, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will return back to normal sexual function. So, in summary, from our registry, and this is, uh, if you guys want to go look this up, part of this data has been published, part of it's in abstract form at all the different societies, um, but probably all of it will be published by the end of the year. Um, But, in, in summary, what we could recommend for the clinicians uh, from our experience, the first thing is we need to screen women for vaginal pain. If you have, or if you're evaluating any patient that has any of the other chronic pain syndromes, again, at some point you have to figure out how to ask them about their vaginal and sexual function. When you're doing your physical examination and we'll go through this, it's important to do, actually we can do this. You can do a sensory exam of the vagina. You can do a single digit musculoskeletal exam. And those things are important part of figuring out what to do with the patient. When we're evaluating women for vaginal pain, we should also assess their psychiatric function and their mood and other comorbidities, but especially their sexual function because we have to have the discussion with them. If you have poor sexual function at the beginning of the treatment, you most likely will be dealing with that even after years of therapy or months of therapy. So the other issue was is that we, it became pretty clear that we need to educate our patients that if you're going to get better, most likely we'll be using multimodal therapy. So this one, this, we, we, we don't do just one thing at a time. And does that sound familiar to you guys, right? This is like nothing for the chronic pain folks, um, but for us it was kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> pretty enlightening. And so as a result of a lot of this research and then other research, uh, I don't mean to imply that the registry was the only thing going on in research, but. Um, There was a lot of different groups across the country that kind of uh, um, confirmed our our suspicions and results, and we were all consistent. So by 2015, and this actually just got published in 2016, the ISSVD came out with a new classification for vulvodynia, and now we have to, um, uh, we can classify vulvodynia into just two types. Vulvar pain, which is actually associated with some kind of problem, like a a neoplasm, an infection, or dermatosis or trauma, or hormonal etiology. And then vulvodynia, which is classified still as three months of pain with unclear identifiable cause, but may have other associated factors such as um, comorbid, other comorbid pain syndromes, um, um, musculoskeletal problems, neurologic or uh, 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 problems in, and psychosocial uh, problems as well. So this is more consistent with our psychosocial model of pain, of chronic pain. So we've, made that, we've migrated towards that world. So for healthcare providers who are taking care of these patients, what do I recommend based on my experience? <laughs> first of all, <clears throat> when you're thinking about vulvar pain, you first have to decide whether you fall into column A, which is, oops, excuse me, I like having a single screen, which is, the, do you have a patient who has a vulvar dermatosis, an infectious vaginitis or inflammatory process, an atrophy or hormonal process, or a myalgia? And if not, then you most likely have vulvodynia. Okay? Now, a lot of people, there's a lot of debate as to whether we should be calling vulvodynia a vulvar neuralgia. I'm not going to get into that debate today because I don't think it matters clinically. You, that group of patients, you treat them like a neuralgia anyway, so it doesn't matter. Then what we wanna do, you wanna make sure that you screen all vulvar patients for other chronic pain syndromes. There's plenty of data that substantiates that and that recommendation needs to be taken head on by all healthcare providers. And then when you've done all that screening, it's very important to take quite a bit of time to establish trust, to make sure that the patient knows what you need to do, right, because we're talking about a very private issue, very sensitive organ, and you're gonna do a very invasive exam. Well, speculum exam is not invasive to us, but to the patients who have vulvar pain, it really is. And then you're going to take a history and your history again is going to be all back to the biopsychosocial of pain. So you need to assess onset, location, duration. There's a couple of things that are different about vulvar uh, discomfort. Burning pain is pretty much consistent with vulvodynia. But if you have itching as one of the complaints, we think about more about dermatosis. Um, And then you have to make sure you don't have any kind of associated symptoms that are worrisome for cancers and infectious problems such as bleeding and discharge. And a lot of these patients, especially if they have a pelvic floor myalgia associated with their vaginal pain, they will get urgency, frequency, constipation. So those things we need to pick up in the history because they'll modify therapy. Then for quality of life, we absolutely have to get um, answers about their sexual function. Uh, not just mood and so forth. Sexual function is a key thing for us to assess in these patients, and it makes sense. And the physical exam, um, we, in my last talk, I put this up because we talked very briefly about this, but basically we start with the mood ex- and affect exam, just like you, all of you guys do, and then we do a pretty extensive um, musculoskeletal and abdominal exam. And then we start with, uh, when, by the time we get to the vagina, the first thing we do is the sensory and the external visual exam. And the thing, before I get to how we do that or how we recommend that you do that, um, I just wanna emphasize how important it is to educate your patient extensively before you start this. And if the patient is not ready for this type of exam, it's okay, next visit, just let her go take her history as best you can you can start some therapies which we'll talk about and then as long as the patient doesn't have any bleeding or discharge just let her go and extend your exam to the next visit you absolutely have to be ready for this exam and the other thing that it's important for us to realize is primary care and gynecologists we really need to have a chaperone in the room Uh, most of these women have been traumatized by sexual i mean their their perception of what a sexual touches is, is so completely different than ours okay so um, just have a chaperone in the room avoid bedroom language like you know spread your legs and things like that we, we don't use any of that in those patients we, we give them very nice uh, clear instructions such as move down to the bottom of the bed separate your legs until your knees touch my hands but we don't use any kind of bedroom language and we always make sure the patient is fully covered and do try to touch the patient as little as possible There are just some areas that are more sensitive in these vulvar pain patients, such as the urethra and the clitoral region. And unless the patient specifically tells you she has pain in those areas, in which case you do have to pay closer attention, uh, your your exam that we're gonna go through is gonna allow you to take a good look at those areas without having to touch them too much. So you first start with the visual exam. And the first thing you wanna do is you wanna look for fissuring and erythema at the six o'clock position. Now, when we um, describe what the vulva looks like or the vagina looks like, we use the face of a clock. So the 12 o'clock position is somewhere up here, right at the level of the urethra. The six o'clock position is the posterior fourchette. And the reason the six o'clock position is important is because a lot of women who are having intercourse with pain, that, that area becomes very traumatized. So it becomes either erythematous or a lot of times they'll develop fissures in that region. And it's, sometimes it's really just as easy as fixing the fissure and getting rid of, the, rid of the pain. But for you to see the 6 o'clock position, you kind of have to separate the labia a little bit, and you have to pay attention to it. Look for signs of dryness and hypokeratosis, and those are mostly going to be localized to the labia. Okay? I tell all my patients, a normal, healthy vagina is supposed to be sticky, wet, not dry and flaky. If you see dryness in the vulva and flakiness, you should be thinking of dermatosis. The next thing is to look for bumps and ulcerations. Usually in the f- uh, five o'clock position and the seven o'clock, you have the Bartholin's glands. Sometimes they get swollen, sometimes they get ulcerated and leaky and weepy. But in general, the external visual exam is li- just like any other dermatology exam, okay? You need to look for raised, bumpy, regular border things, those are not normal. Things that are discolored or darker in color or hyperpigmented, those are not normal in the vulva most of the time. I mean, people, women do have nevi, you know, benign nevi in the vulva skin and, and they'll tell you, no, I've had that since I was born, it's fine. And then you don't worry about it. The sensory exam, we usually do that uh, with a Q-tip. So we do a QST, but we just use a Q-tip. And some people get pretty adventurous and they'll use ice and so forth. Okay, don't do any of that in clinical practice. You have the soft end of a Q-tip, and the sharp end of a Q-tip, and that's all you need. And what you need to know is that um, the the sensory test, when we do it, what we do is we actually, first of all, we touch these areas right here. And if you have normal sensation in these areas, you should get an anal wink. Also, when you first touch a female uh, um, outside the vulva, you'll you'll see actually the perineal body pull up. They, They have an involuntary contraction. You have to wait a couple of seconds be, to let that go away before you do the rest of your exam. Otherwise, you're trying to put things in the vagina against a closed introitus, which is not comfortable for these patients. So they should have a normal anal wink and they shouldn't have any kind of allodynia, right? They should be able to deter, the, differentiate between soft touch and sharp touch, but it shouldn't be painful. So we can actually test by just pushing at these different locations. So the 12 o'clock, the, 10, uh, the one o'clock, Uh, I can't tell, two o'clock, five o'clock, six, seven, so just around these areas. uh, With a Q-tip, we just apply gentle pressure, and patients should be able to tolerate that very well. And if they don't, they either are allodinic or hyperalgesic. There's lots of muscles in the vagina. There's a big one that goes around the vaginal entrance. There's one that goes across right here, we call the transversalis, and there's one that goes around the anus, and they kind of form this figure eight around the vaginal entrance. So... One of the key things to know is that for most patients who come in with vaginal pain, most of their pain is localized to the vestibule or to these pelvic floor muscles, these vaginal entrance muscles. Now this is a superficial layer because there's actually two layers of muscles around the vagina. There's one that goes like this in the figure eight, and there's another set of levator plates which is much more internal and deeper. So when we do the next portion of the exam, besides the visual exam and the sensory exam, is a single-digit exam. We use a very well-lubricated (laughs) single-digit. Decide which digit to use. It has to be your smallest digit, okay? And just very slowly insert it into the vagina. And you can actually grab this little muscle here between your two fingers very gently and just either tug on it a little bit at the 5 and 7 o'clock position or just roll it around. It should be not painful. If it is, that's abnormal. And then you can actually insert the same digit a little bit deeper into the vagina and push down at the five and the seven o'clock position, and you would be touching the levator muscles, which is actually a collection of muscles. And those should be non-tender. And women should be able, we know now this from our registry research, women should be able to tolerate at least two kilograms of pressure in the vagina without feeling anything but pressure. So if they have pain, that's abnormal you also will feel um, you'll feel it's interesting because once you start doing enough normal exams then you feel someone who has pelvic floor hypertonicity and you can feel their muscles feel like a rock i mean you can strum them like a guitar they're very tender and they're very abnormal feeling but the other thing you might notice is women losing the ability to voluntarily contract the pelvic floor muscles which happens uh, later on in myalgias after they've been uh, in pain for a while Um, So all of these things you can pick up on the single-digit exam. And the most important thing, um, besides palpating the muscles, you can also uh, assess whether women have cervical pain, uh, and you can assess the bladder with a single digit to see if they have bladder pain. All of that you can do without a speculum. And if you don't feel that the patient will tolerate a speculum exam, guess what? Stop, right there, just stop. If you don't see any big discharge or bleeding, you can stop and go with the information you have, it's plenty. Um, If you are lucky enough to get to a speculum exam, we usually use a very small, clear plastic speculum so we can see through the walls without having to dilate the speculum exam, the speculum very much. And all we usually do, the only recommended test for a vulvar pain patient is a vaginal pH, a vaginitis or STI screen if you see a discharge. If not, we don't even do that. Um, Or or cultures if you do that. Uh, but we don't ever do biopsies or more aggressive things unless we actually see a worrisome lesion, okay? So there's no recommended test with the exception of your eyeballs and perhaps the transvaginal ultrasound. That would be the other thing because you can make sure patients don't have deeper causes, pelvic masses and so forth for their pain. So that's it. These are the, oops, excuse me. These are the only tests that I would recommend for any level, primary care or GYN, this is all you would need to do in a patient who has vaginal pain, at the most. Now we do a lot more. Sorry, you have a question? Yes. Yeah. This a, a I have, I, mean, I, I don't get do a lot of I don't every now and we do, but the size of the partner. Yes. So um, one of the thing, the question, the it was more like a comment actually, not really a question. Sure, I asked you about the size of the yeah. The green it goes up or whatever then that kind of that, that can cause pain by going from small bite to large green or to a blue <laughs> right yeah. right so so the gentleman's point was that you can use the patient's history to guide what size speculum you should use um, you can ask her about the size of her partner and to see what she can tolerate and absolutely you can do all of those things and Uh, Towards the end of the talk, you'll see me talk a lot about pelvic floor physical therapy and vaginal dilators. And I can tell you that from taking care of these patients, if they're in real pain, any size is too big. I mean, sometimes when you're examining the patient, the vaginal introitus is so contracted, it looks like a pediatric size introitus. Even my pinky has a hard time examining the patient. And so, you know, talking your way through with the patient and just stopping when she can't tolerate anymore is, is, is very important, yeah. Now, I was gonna talk about other diagnostic tests. We have all of these other diagnostic tests that we can perform in women who have pain, um, vaginal pain, pelvic pain, and dysfunctional disorders. So dysfunctional disorders of the pelvis are things like, you know, bowel problems, bladder problems, muscle problems. And we have all of these things that we can do. Uh, we can block folks to see if they have a neuralgia, all of these things. but none of them are actually really recommended i mean they're just you go on an expedition and none of them have been shown to be more valuable than your good old history and very gentle single digit and speculum exam so then once you've done your exam you want to go on uh, to treatment and like like in any other chronic pain syndrome involve our pain specifically it's so important to take the time and educate your patient define the expectations uh, for a pain relief versus return to actual sexual function. Define how long, I mean what is the patient trying to get out of this? Uh, because we have patients who will tolerate a little bit of pain and be sexually active and be fine and they, they're not looking for 100% pain relief. They understand that. And then there are some patients who do want 100% pain relief and we're like, okay, maybe we're not gonna get there. So we kind of have to discuss all of those things before we start talking about therapy because as you'll see in a minute, therapy can be pretty involved. Then there are other things about quality of life, you know, improvements in sleep, improvement in mood, uh, daily activity. All of those things are good outcomes that we can focus on and make a huge impact on without necessarily impacting the pain during intercourse very much. And some patients are actually fine with not having intercourse, believe it or not, but we just never actually ask them, so we wouldn't know if we don't ask them. Treatment duration for most of these patients, and this was true in our registry and when you look at the literature, treatment duration is about 6 to 12 months, and you'll see why in just a minute, Uh, because it involves primarily a lot of therapies, but also a lot of these therapies take a while to work. So we have to educate the patient quite a bit before we start therapy. Now what we're going to go through next are treatment, well I don't want to call them algorithms, let's just call them, what does Microsoft call those hierarchy charts? you know, we'll just call them charts. Recommendations, they're not really algorithms. Most of you guys will mix and match some of these recommendations, but I just try to to, uh, categorize them to make them easier to remember. So the first group of patients are the patients that have vulvar dermatosis or signs or inflammatory changes of the vulva. So dryness, hypokeratosis, itching, and if you're really brave and you've done a vaginal biopsy, a lot of these patients will have things like lichen sclerosis, that's usually the most common one we'll see, lichen chronicus, simplex chronicus. So they have a true dermatosis. And what's interesting about these patients is they usually, they'll show up with itching and pain. So remember itching is a different construct than pain. And even that really applies to the vagina. So in those patients, you treat them just like any other dermatosis. There's no magic behind that, okay? We use topical steroids quite a bit. We use some of the higher potency steroids as well. We usually apply those steroids about three times a week. We use lots of emollients to keep the vaginal skin moist. There's no, you know how they always teach you in dermatology, if it's dry, make it wet. If it's wet, make it dry. None of that applies to the vagina. It always needs to be wet, okay? And so we always use emollients, and we use pretty gentle emollients. Um, You have to focus on things that don't dry the skin. So a lot of my patients will use things like coconut oil. If you don't mind smelling like a salad, you can use olive oil. I mean, just anything that's emollient. Some women use petrolatum. It's a little bit thicker on the skin, so you have to be careful with that, but keeping the vaginal skin moist is important. And then we have to rule out infection a lot in these women because they get superimposed bacterial vaginitis, vaginosis, or um, fungal infections. So a lot of times we're gonna use an antibiotic or an antifungal, and we only have two things really for the vagina, metronidazole, or clindamycin, or diflucan, pretty much, or terazol. So it's pretty um, simple. If we have patients who really just do not respond, and usually within four to six weeks of therapy, you should see the redness and the dryness go away and the itching start to get a lot better, and then the pain follows about eight weeks, four to eight weeks later. But the dryness and the itching should go away pretty soon. And so if we have patients that just don't respond, we will biopsy them to confirm our diagnosis, and if we need to, we'll move to oral steroids for short periods of time. So my clinical pearls for you are, we always have to be very careful to use non-irritating bases because vulvar skin is very sensitive. And a lot of the compounds that we use that are pre-formulated are actually pretty acidic and the patient puts them on and it burns. A lot of the topical steroids are like that. So if it's gonna burn, guess what? They're not gonna use it for the eight weeks that you need them to use it. So you have to be very careful and make sure that they don't have hypersensitivities to, to the base that your medication is in. And I've just listed here some of the less inf- uh, irritating bases that we use. I love coconut oil. It seems to be pretty easy to get. And we compound things a lot. So if a topical steroid burns when you apply it, we just compound it in something that doesn't burn. A lot of these women, you know, you tone down the inflammation, but then you need to get new vaginal skin to grow in. And the way we do that is with estrogen. So we'll combine, anti-inflammatory therapies with topical estrogen and to get new skin. If you have a lot of itching and the patient is, has a really bad scratch itch cycle, she's not sleeping at night, we use antihistamines for that. So that's no different than anything else you do in dermatology like every day, right? It's just in the vagina. Then there are the people who you can't find anything wrong with them, but they're allodinic. I mean, you do their exam and they jump off the table with a Q-tip. And so those folks, We um, traditionally, we've uh, started uh, treating them with topical anesthetics like lidocaine, which you have to be very careful with because again, it's acidic and it can cause it to burn. But nowadays, um, we don't use lidocaine so much just because the data on that has been kind of iffy. It only works for a very small amount of time. Uh, So now we treat these patients like you would any other neuropathy. We treat them with oral uh, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, neuroleptics, and I've just listed a whole bunch here, all the anticonvulsants you can think of. And we start low dose at night because it tends to be pretty sedating. Uh, and most of these patients, remember, they're, they're, most of their dysfunction is related to sexual function or sexual touch and so or vaginal touch. And so we start most of their medications at night and then we increase as necessary. Yes, so um, there are a lot of providers who are compounding amitriptyline and... And uh, um, gabapentin, and I mean, God knows, Valium has been, (laughs) everything has been compounded. The truth of the matter is that we've never actually been able to show that compounding these things vaginally is more effective than taking them orally. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is, you know, the more you put on the vaginal skin, the vaginal skin is super, super sensitive. And there is the added issue of, you know, women don't walk around thinking about their vaginas every day, right? I mean, you don't know it's there. But a vulvar patient is constantly feeling her vagina. Constantly, I mean, she's, she, it's hard for a patient not to become constantly fixated on their pain. And so now you're putting all sorts of things in the vagina and they have to keep touching the vagina and so forth. I don't know that that's such a good, good thing and you just have to discuss those things with your patient and individualized therapy. But we don't have any good studies comparing vaginal application with topical. So my clinical pearls for you in this group of patients where you don't see anything wrong except they have pain right and it's a burning pain usually it's really like a neuropathy right and these patients sometimes have not just localized pain but vulvar generalized pain so anything can set it off even light touch from clothing can set it off. So these patients again if you're going to put something in the vagina make sure it is very very non irritating. Make sure the vaginal surfaces stay slippery, right? The the labia are constantly touching each other. When you sit, when you put clothes on, there's always something touching the the labia. So the idea is to put something non-irritating that's a barrier between those two surfaces, okay? So non-irritating bases, emollients. Um, I tend to prefer ointments versus creams. Creams tend to be very heavy and they kind of stick to the skin. And then again, once you start fixing the pain, if the patient does great, wonderful. But if you still notice a redness and signs of inflammation, which make, right, we, we can call it whatever you want to call it, a neurogenic inflammation, inflammatory pain, whatever you want to call it, the way to regenerate vaginal skin is with topical estrogen. Okay, so you can experiment with that as well. In general, though, for this class of patients, we focus mostly with uh, our therapy, mostly on, uh, with tricyclic antidepressants and neuroleptics. The next group of patients are the patients who have myalgias. This is the most ignored group of patients. And remember in our registry, 90% of patients had a pelvic floor myalgia by the time they got to us. Now, whether that's secondary or primary, it doesn't matter. They have a myalgia that needs to be addressed. And so in these patients, we treat myalgias of the pelvis and the vaginal and the same exact way you treat any other myalgias. We do lots of physical therapy. We use pelvic floor internal vaginal therapy and internal manipulation like it's nothing. I mean, 80, 90% of our patients are in there in those types of therapies? Yes. Yes, so what will happen, and this is very, um, it's really interesting. You'll, you'll have a patient who, who is, has introidal alladenia. So you touch the introitus, okay, and with a Q-tip and it hurts. But if they don't always have a myalgia, you can actually go in a little bit deeper past the introitus and touch the internal muscles and they're fine with that. And then you have patients who have both, and you'll also have patients who have no vaginal enteroidus and it's all pelvic floor muscle, okay? So the difference is deep pressure versus light touch. Yes? All physical exam, yes. And then we have our wonderful physical therapists who help us. <laughs> if we are not quite sure, we send it to them and they figure it out. But basically these patients, remember it's a myalgia, so we use muscle relaxants, and physical therapy. And if a patient doesn't respond, we'll inject Botox, we'll inject anesthetics. We do literally trigger point injections in the vagina. And um, patients tend to respond pretty well. These are actually my favorite type of patients because I know I can fix them. Now, what's very interesting about these patients is that a lot of them, like I said, they do internal vaginal therapy, so we use a lot of vaginal dilators, internal stimulators, all of those things. I mean, anything you can think of using on a muscle outside the vagina, we can put it in the vagina somehow. And then there are the women who have vaginal atrophy or hormonal change. These are usually postmenopausal women. Their vagina is dry and whitish looking. These are patients that will say to you, you know, everything was fine until about five years ago. And then you ask him, what happened five years ago? Well, I either started going into menopause or somebody took me off of my hormones because they told me it was a risky thing to be on those hormones. And so these are again, very easy patients to fix. And when I say easy, it's all relative, right? Cause I'm talking about months of therapy, but basically these are all patients that we fix with topical estrogen. Now, if you have patients that cannot take or tolerate topical estrogen, sometimes we will use oral estrogens they don't respond very well to, but we'll use Osphena as well okay sorry I'm trying to look around make sure I don't miss questions so topical estrogens is the way to go now what's interesting about hormonal atrophy or vaginal atrophy is that you can see these changes even in very young women and that's why you'll see patients who have if they if they if we think they have a neuralgia or a myalgia and we see you know dry vaginal mucosa or redness a lot of times we'll experiment and we'll just add estrogen and what's interesting is we've kind of come to realize that not all women have the same estrogen levels, right? And women transition into perimenopause much earlier than what we thought. Because we always used to tell women, oh, wait till 50 to 52, and then that's when things are going to start. And that's actually not true. They'll start the perimenopausal transition as early as their 40s. Okay, So they can have signs of dryness and burning and pain with intercourse, um, and they, which is consistent with atrophy, and they respond to estrogens. Now, the big tricky group are the people, the women who are postmenopausal and have vaginal atrophy and they're cancer survivors, breast cancer survivors. Because we have to be very careful with estrogen therapy in these patients. It's very tricky, lots of times, mostly what we do is just um, lubricants, topical lidocaine, vaginal dilators, and we just can't use any type of estrogen. Now, we can talk about whether we should be using Osphena in these patients or not, but that's another discussion for another day. So that's the only group that I'll say Uh, Be cautious about using topical estrogen. These patients, we usually consult with their uh, oncologist or, you know, GYN oncologist or whoever's taking care of them who has an oncology degree, and we make sure that they're good candidates for topical estrogen. And then there's the psychosocial. who Who is this patient? This is the patient who has had sexual trauma, physical trauma, and their pain started with that so when you do a physical exam you don't really see anything wrong except that they're either you know they may be allodinic or they have sometimes some some type of um myalgias but really their pain they can clearly tell you that my pain started with this kind of traumatic event what's interesting about this category is that there's really it's a rare in the book we know that this category exists but in real life this category crosses all aspects, all of the other categories, right? Because by the time the patients come to us, they often have mood dysfunction, depression, anxiety. We find out all sorts of things about trauma. And, and, and so I think this is kind of one of those things that applies to every single patient with vaginal pain. But I put this as a separate category because it's very important to know that if you identify those types of dysfunctions in a patient, then the things that we, we use cognitive behavioral therapy a lot, a lot, a lot. We use sexual counselors and relationship counselors. Uh, we do a lot of meditation. We focus a lot on sleep, meditation, relaxation. I mean, anything that you can think as a psychiatric or, or cognitive behavioral intervention, we use a lot in these patients. And the reason we use it is because, let me just make sure I'm good on time. We we'll almost need to be done. A lot of these patients, what happens is they start with pain, but they kind of become trapped in that, fear-pain model that everyone talks about. And in a female, in the vagina, the way it works, and I always tell my patients, the vagina is a very smart organ. Because if it feels pain the first time around, what does it do the second time around? It contracts, So the normal sexual cycle, the way it works is you see Fabio, in a female, excuse me, I should say. You see Fabio, right? So you get aroused. And so there's that subconscious thing going on in your brain, and that actually sends a signal to your vagina. And actually in the vagina relaxes the vaginal muscles relax the vaginal tissues become engorged in the relaxation process the vagina actually becomes longer and wider and the pelvic organs the uterus and the bladder get pulled up and out of the pelvis so that it will protect you against pain during intercourse if you have pain none of that happens you see fabio and you go So you go because you're a good patient right every woman does this oh it'll be okay i'm going to try it again anyways please my partner so you go and you try to have intercourse and the pelvic floor muscles are all contracted the vagina is not ready and so the cycle just perpetuates itself so when we're doing when we're doing therapy for these patients we first have to treat the pain but then we have to address their sexual function and the way we do that is first we have to get over the fear of intercourse which is what our cognitive behavioral therapists do then we have to make sure that the touch any touch to the vagina is not painful. And we use dilators to test the vagina. We do a physical exam or we'll have the patient use incrementally increasing in size dilators until they get to the size of their partner. And when those things are not painful to go in the vagina, that's when we tell them to go back and have intercourse. Because if you can't fit a dilator in the vagina comfortably without fear, you most likely will not be able to have intercourse. So this is what we call desensitization and every patient who's had vulvar pain has to go through this at some point before we ask him to go back to having sexual intercourse and if you miss this step you most likely are going to have problems with returning that patient back to normal sexual function so to summarize vulvar pain is multifactorial we have to worry about skin we have to worry about muscles we have to worry about psyche it's just like any other psychosocial any other chronic pain syndrome and so lots of times we have to use multiple therapies. And then you know, our goals for therapy um, differ, are different for every patient. And if sexual function is one of those things we have to get back to, then we have to address a lot more than just pain. We have to actually address sexual function. But overall, vaginal chronic vaginal pain really is very similar to all of these other chronic pain syndromes that you have heard about. It's just that it's located in the vagina. And this was my test answer. I don't know what your test answer was, but hopefully this will be your test answer by the time the talk is done, okay? Yes? The only ones that I can get to, which are the external vaginal muscles, so the bulbous cavernosus, the transverse, transverses, so the perineal body. I can get to the levators, or the most of the levator plate, um, and that's about it, I can't get to any of the higher like i can't so i can get to obturator um uh, but i can't get to things like performance or something like that which would also manifest itself as a vaginal pain what a great question so the question was do you find that anal pain is associated with some of the presentations of ovar pain and yes the answer to that is yes it's usually what happens is the patient will start with some kind of vaginal pain etiology, and then they'll get a secondary myalgia and then once the entire pelvic floor becomes involved then you'll start seeing defecatory pain or dysfunction and what's the you know it's it's pretty small i mean i would have to say if i had to guess it's probably about three uh, percent more so in older women who have pudendal neuralgia because the new pudendal, neural, pudendal nerve actually innervates part, portion of the anus so, if you have a pudendal neuralgia, a lot of these patients will have a vulvar pain and anal pain as their primary complaint. Great, and you guys are troopers. Thank you very, very much for being here this late. I'm sorry. It's it, it's so if it's a gel, it's usually drying. What about, um, the form HC? Um, that's okay for. Yeah, the problem is it's uh, cortisone, right? So it's yeah. it's, it's a little, it's little bit it's a weak. Yeah, don't get. Remember, I said we use some of the higher potency. Clobetazole, Yeah. Um. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>